Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Money Mitch Effect. I'm your host, Mitch Michaels, and thank you again, as always, for joining me on this sports podcast. Hope you're ready to listen to some great sports talk with some special guests. First up, it's going to be Brandon Marcus talking NBA playoffs, Kawhi Leonard's buzzer beater, how the Raptors and Bucks are going to match up in the Eastern Conference Final, and then the reemergence of the old school Dubs with Steph Curry taking on the Portland Trailblazers in the Western Conference Final. We touch on the lottery tape before it actually happens, so a lot to talk there. Then Jose Youngs from MMA Fighting is going to break down UFC 237, his thoughts on Bellator 221, some big fights coming up. This summer, we both can't wait. It's the Money Mitch Effect, and it starts right now. All right, now back on the Money Mitch Effect to talk some playoff hoops. Host of the Mostly Banner Podcast and friend of the show, Brandon Marcus. Brandon, how are you today? What's up, Mitch? Glad to be back. Yeah, yeah, had to get you in now with the uh, conference finals looming, and I will say... As someone that has my pet peeves with the NBA and the playoffs and the structure and all that, it was a pretty good day of Game 7s. Even the Game 6 Rockets-Warriors, a nice little stretch of playoff basketball where the uh, the outcomes were in doubt. And I, I think you can't really say that too much about the NBA, but I was pleasantly surprised with what we got on Sunday. Yeah, you had three teams, if you include the Warriors-Rockets, that they were plus 5, I think, to plus 7. So like pretty decent spreads i mean it's not wasn't two or three point spread and the underdogs were in it in all three and actually won two of the three games yeah and that's a very good point i do think that what we see a lot in these tight in these games in these elimination games or game six in, in the warriors rockets case is teams tighten up and then you have rosters you have rotations where guys who either haven't been there or don't necessarily shine in the big moments kind of get lost in the lights, lock up a little bit, and it takes a Herculean effort like we saw from Steph Curry, like we saw from Kawhi Leonard, and then C.J. McCollum as well. That was the thing that stood out the most to me, but I want to start with that Raptors-Sixers series because it was ba- it was far and away the most competitive game of the entire series. It was a seven-game series that had a lot of blowouts, but what we saw in that game, the bounce itself was one thing, but I want to start with the effort from Kawhi Leonard because he continually gets better, this was unprecedented levels for all-time greats, what he did on Sunday. The shot and how it went in notwithstanding, B-Mark, that was the most dominating performance in an elimination game in recent memory. Yeah, he was able to get to a spot whenever he wanted to. And for the Raptors, they've had their balance all year of guys like Siakam and Lowry. And once Gasol came over with the deadline, and then you had Ibaka. I mean, they had some talent all around. I mean, even guys like Fred Van Fleet, who have kind of disappeared in the playoffs, they all chipped in, but... I mean, time and time again, we see it's the star that needs to step up when you need a basket, and some of these role players fade. And in this case, I mean, Kawhi able to get 41. The dude's a monster. His ability to just be so efficient and not be a guy, I don't know, like Kobe or something, that needs 25, 30 shots to make his 12 or 13. Um, When it's one of those nights, Kawhi just shoots around 50%. He's just so damn good, and you kind of forgot how good he was because of last year when it was so chaotic with the Spurs and him not playing. But he really is right now one of the top five players in the NBA. Well, you said a few things I want to get into, but one being I'm just so upset he's not on the Spurs, man. It's just I watch this game. I'm like, why is he not still in San Antonio? But 41 points, and the team only scored 92. So he was – I mean, without him out there, it's, it's cliche a lot of times, but – they're not going to have any chance without him doing what he did. And, yes, he can be and usually is very, very efficient. He needed to take those 39 shots. It wasn't like a ball dominant. You mentioned Kobe, some other shooters. Westbrook gets in that mode. Harden, who we saw, where they just shoot because they can. If Kawhi doesn't take those shots, nobody else on that team had the confidence in that game, Siakam included, except for Ibaka, who was knocking down some shots. But Kawhi, to me, is... I think at worst, top three now in the league. And I put it to you, B-Mark, because of the defense. That's what it's. That's where he separates himself to. He was defending as well yesterday. And to do it on both ends of the court, which I, I think is still undervalued in this league, puts him in that top, top stratosphere now. So would you go Giannis, Durant, and then Kawhi? Well, if we're talking like 
You still have Harden. Don't forget about Harden. No, I know, and I know, and I would say that if we're talking not who's going to win the awards, but just overall best players in the league, I would put Durant one, and I put Kawhi two. And I love Giannis. Wow. But I don't know that he's there. Like Kawhi's leaps that he made, getting that consistent outside shot. I think Giannis will get a better shot. I just think he's not quite there yet. He's still unbelievable, and we're picking amongst the absolute best. And they're all good defenders. But Kawhi, what he does on both ends, to me, Durant's just an unbelievable score that's unprecedented, almost historically. So I would say that would be my order right now. Yeah, that's fair. I think the funny thing with Giannis is that we have such high expectations for him that we keep thinking he's going to get better, so we're afraid to put him at that number one spot. Yeah, Because we know he's capable of just being a... I mean, yeah, he is only, I mean, what is he, 25, Kawhi's 27, 28. They're still, quote-unquote, just around their peak. Obviously, Kawhi's probably there. It's scary if he's not at his peak now. If there is another level to Kawhi, who came into the league, not a good shooter. And now he is running and doing the lion's share of the offense. The shot itself, though, was amazing. I mean, we've seen buzzer beaters, but I've never seen anything like that. Dude, it reminded me of two things. It reminded me of... Happy Gilmore when he hits it off every single piece of uh, whatever you want to call it. The, the tower, yeah, the tower that yep. fell down. It goes off the tower and then it goes clank, 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 and you're just waiting for it to go down. And then it reminds me also of Tiger's putt. What was yeah. it, the U.S. or something? 2005 or Masters, yeah. Yeah, 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 there you go. I mean, it's to both those things. It's funny that golf comes into uh, both the analogies, but it really did seem like the entire arena went quiet as it bounced off the rim four times and finally went down. Yeah, my first reaction was to think of the Tiger uh, Tiger putt in the Masters, but it was funny to me, looking at it in real time, you almost forgot where Kawhi was because he was mm-hmm. sitting down waiting, watching it off the side in front of his bench that you couldn't even see him immediately when it dropped in. Gut, gut-wrenching loss for the Sixers in that regard. Any, any team, any fan base that loses that way, that's just absolutely brutal. But having said that, I got to look at those three possessions where there were just basically all shot clock violations late. The Sixers so offense bad. Just and went. one of them out of a timeout too. How does that happen? Well, it, there's uh, there really is no explanation for how it can happen in a big moment like this. But we saw the worst of the what I think is the worst of the Sixers offensive woes, offensive inefficiencies of maybe all the talent that they have. I think clearly more talent on a per-body per basis than the Raptors, but they didn't exactly fit, and I think that was part of what we saw. It, it basically came to Jimmy Butler taking over. when That's what kept them in that game late was Butler's like, screw it, I have to do this. No one else is really stepping up. Simmons can't make a jump shot. Uh, who is, Harris was just very, very out of place for the most part of that game. And Embiid's great. But there's something about him on the floor. They can't get him out there, and he's tired, out of shape. I don't know what it is, injured. But Butler looked around and said, I have to do this, which I don't fault. I have my fault to Jimmy Butler. But in that moment, that was the only option. Yeah, and for Embiid, it's embarrassing for a guy that's as tall as he is to be 6 for 18 from the field. That's kind of inexcusable. And they, and- were, they were good looks, like right at the basket, point blank in some occasion. Yeah, and you shouldn't be taking six threes. I mean, you are not Tobias Harris. You are not Jimmy Butler. I know he's a decent three-point shooter. But with all the talent there, with Harris and Embiid and Butler and Redick, it's unbelievable that you get three possessions, like you said, that end up in shot clock violations. How you can't move the ball with those guys and find an open shot. I mean, give credit to the Raptors' defense. But also, there's got to be blame on Brett Brown. For you to call Mm -hmm. it and for you not to be able to develop a play that gets you a good look, I mean, come on, shame on you. Yeah, I can't see him coming back, just being blatantly honest. He he may come back. I know they're not sure, but I don't know what the expectation was. They lost in the second round again. And that also goes to maybe some of the front office mistakes. This this game seven was basically seven on seven. There's two subs, I think, for each team. The Sixers, for all the depth that they accumulated, all the assets, they just didn't have a bench in this game. just wasn't there. I was going to say that exact same thing. I was just looking because I was curious. I saw earlier the Raptors, they only had Ibaka and Van Vliet come off the bench. And it's just amazing how in the playoffs you really do shorten those benches. But for Philly, Mike Scott, James Ennis, Greg Monroe, those three guys going to scare you? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, that's really bad. And that's what happens when you put so much of your investment into the starting lineup you hurt your bench. But that being said, I really do think that guys like Jonathan Simmons and Boban and TJ McConnell 
can be guys that get on the floor. Mm-hmm. It's just a matter of finding a way to get them in and the guys around him have to be able to get those guys involved. And I don't, I don't know. I, I think part of that is definitely coaching. And I also don't think that they plan very well for the postseason. When, whereas last year, they had guys that they could bring in off the bench, guys like Bellinelli that could hit a three for them. Now it's you have no idea who you're going to bring off the bench that can contribute. Still had Covington on that team, too, who can knock down some shots. I, I think it's going to be a very fascinating offseason because you have the coach issue, you have these two big free agents in Butler and Harris. What do you do with that roster? I, that, it, this is and, and really, it's a trust issue with the other two guys that are under contract. Can Embiid be the best player? I don't know. I don't know if we could see it over the course of a season. And Simmons, I mean, we look, everybody has their Ben Simmons takes, but in big moments, I don't know that you can rely on him in a half-court set. I just I don't see it. Probably not. I mean, he can't it's make not, a jump shot, and you need a, you need a point guard that's able to shoot. And so I, it really is interesting because this offseason will really dictate this team's future mm. because you may make a huge mistake keeping Harris over Butler or Butler over Harris. I really do think that they're going to end up keeping Harris and they're going to let Butler walk. I, I think, think that's the right move. Yeah, I think team chemistry is going to be important in this one. Uh, but I don't know, man. It really will be interesting to see what they do because this whole process, it's no longer a process. You now have to win games, and they're not winning games. Well, that's going to be the one of the more interesting NBA offseasons, but following the Sixers is going to be something to see. Brandon Marcus on the Money Mitch Effect talking NBA playoffs. The other Game 7 that got overshadowed because of all the drama in Toronto was the Portland Trailblazers reaching the conference final and winning on the road in Game 7. B-Mark, they beat the Nuggets, and they went into Denver, did what uh, I wouldn't say few thought they could do, but definitely at the beginning of the season, not too many people had the, these guys penciled in as a conference finalist. They win 196 and for all the great play and adulation that Dame Lillard's got, this was C.J. McCollum's time to shine. And it was very impressive to see him step up when his team needed it the most. Dude, the block was probably the biggest play. I mean, that shade, really of, was. That shade of LeBron um, in, the, in the NBA Finals. I mean, that chase down block was legit a difference in the game. I mean, if he makes that layup and it's not blocked, then the game completely could change. Um, Denver just really missed a lot of free throws too, so shame on them. I mean, they ended up missing at like 10 or 11 free throws. Um, not great. And you wonder with this team, outside of Joker, who can you go to? Mm. And really do really tend to lean on Jamal Murray, and Jamal Murray was 4 for 18. So if he doesn't do anything then you really are a one-man team, which is not great. Well, you hit the nail on the head, and it's something that the Spurs almost exposed as a seven seed, taking Denver to seven games and nearly pulling that off. They're a one-man team. Their one man is great, unbelievable, Jokic. But he's also a big man, too. So he's not going to be able to create his own shot like a guard or perimeter player would. And that's the that's the, the crossroads of this Denver team. They have a lot of good players, but probably only one great one. I think they're at that position, B-Mark, would you say that maybe a team like the Celtics was at, where they have all these good players, and now they're thinking, how can we get a great player with some of these assets? Ah, it's tough. I know Celtics are a bad example right now, but uh, it, you know what I'm getting at, where they have a lot of depth, but this could be the ceiling for this type of roster construction. Yeah, but you wonder, um, with all those guards on their team, guys like Beasley and Morris and Murray and Harris and Barton. I guess Porter Jr. is the one, too. We got Maybe there's something there. I don't know. Yeah, but you can't rely on him to be an immediate starter. So, so the question is, what do you do with all those guards? When this really has become a guard-driven league, um, I don't know. It, it is interesting because Paul Mills is supposed to be a guy that you're able to rely on. And for him to foul out and only make three shots – in a game seven, I mean, that's, that's not great. And he was pretty solid, honestly, throughout the season. Um, he did get hurt for a stretch. But they had guys like Juan Hernan Gomez who stepped up, and Hernan Gomez didn't even see the floor. So it's, uh, it's a team that has talent there. It just feels like they're missing one piece. Yeah, I just don't know how you go about acquiring it unless it's via trade. Like, I don't know if you're going to lure a big-time free agent there or if you're going to have to make a deal. Because these are players that other teams would want. And I think Murray is someone that is their best option. I don't know what 
he, he what he's eventually going to become as a player, other than maybe a, a great streaky shooter all on that Lou Williams type mold. I don't know if he ever becomes a superstar in this league. Maybe, but I think Jamal sure. Murray has the potential to be better than Lou Williams. I, I, I agree with that. It's just I, realizing it is going to be not a guarantee, and then you wonder what the window of this team is. But do you know how old Jamal Murray is? He's 22 years old. I mean, we got to give this guy a chance. He, he's so young. And for him to be the number two option on a team that was one win away from the Western Conference Finals tells you a lot about him. And if he's able to grow even more this offseason, then maybe you don't need much more. But you do need more consistency from the guys around Joker and Murray. You can't have Harris having an on game and an off game and same with Millsap. And then, I mean, Torrey Craig entered the starting lineup. They became a better team. But Torrey Craig shouldn't be starting. No. He really should be starting a guy like Will Barton. But... He just wasn't that great during the playoffs. No, he wasn't. And, and props to Portland. That team just competes. Uh, Lillard having a, a dreadful game. McCollum steps up. Enos Cantor plays 40 minutes. This guy was available for any team to have. It's funny, in the free, in, uh, in free agency, to, or uh, should be at the uh, deadline time. And then Evan Turner off the bench. Scores 14 points in limited minutes. Just a competitive, fiery team. And Terry Stotts have them ready to play, especially in big moments and closeout games. Dude, he's a tremendous coach because before the season, everyone was saying how Portland's going to be the team that dropped off mm-hmm. and didn't make the playoffs. They didn't do anything. They should have traded either Lillard or McCollum every single offseason. They need to get rid of either Lillard or McCollum. These guys, it's just the two of them. Then Nurk gets hurt, and everyone says, all right, put a dagger in them. They're, they may not make the playoffs, or they're going to slip to the 7 or 8 seed. You want to play against them in the playoffs. But, dude, they're dangerous. It, it really is unbelievable how good McCollum was because this was the one off game for Lillard and Portland would have been going home if it wasn't for McCollum because when you look at Lillard and he's three for 17, you need yeah. a an effort from everybody else around and that's exactly what happened. And Denver blew their chance in the first half not running away with it when Portland couldn't make a shot and it was only nine points at halftime. So can't be missing those opportunities, especially at home in these big games, but Portland advances where they're going to play the Warriors Brandon, it was a virtuoso throwback performance from the OG Splash Brothers. Durant didn't play in Game 6 against Houston. At Houston, didn't matter. Curry, 33 in the second half. Clay was great in the first half and pretty much all game as well, uh, scoring 27 and nailing seven threes. But this was a game that I was... We can talk about it a little bit more, but I was more optimistic about the Warriors' chances. I think you were as well in this game six because of the fact that there's that championship pedigree there. And when a guy like Durant goes out, it's going to bring the best out of the other players that need to step up and have in the past. But also Houston, this is just kind of what they've done the last five years. Yeah. This is a golden state team that has won games without Durant. So it's not like they were going to be there and be phased with Durant, not in the lineup. I mean, it just gives a chance for Curry and Thompson to step up because those guys don't really have the same, amazing game together anymore and for curry i mean nine of 20 from the field when everyone was going after him in the second half obviously he was tremendous um and then clay to be 10 of 20 and 7 of 13 from three obviously the big guy i mean same thing with evan turner obviously stepping up for portland is with iggy stepping up for golden state without uh, downtown five threes i mean they wouldn't have won the game but it shows you again that houston is built to go to the finals, it's just that they run into Golden State every year, and that's the problem now because okay. they have a very good team, and you just wonder how much is on those legs of Chris Paul and if maybe this was their last chance. Well, those are some good points, but I do want to bring up now that this is the second time that they've had a game six or that they've lost at home to a team without their best player. Mm-hmm. This is the same thing that happened again when the Spurs here when they lost to Golden State in the conference finals when Kawhi was out. And and I don't want to take anything away from Golden State, but Houston has to win this game. I mean, and Curry goes scoreless in the first half, and you're tied. You're leading in the fourth quarter, going into the fourth quarter at home in a game-facing elimination. I look at a couple different things. Harden's going to get the brunt of this, as superstars do. I mean, that's just the nature of the beast. But Clint Capella, give give them something. You know, he got outplayed by Kevin Looney. And if that happens, I mean, you're probably never going to beat the Warriors. But yeah, they couldn't but they, go to anybody in the post, and, and they had to go, I guess, super small and, and sacrifice all their size and rebounding. Right, and P.J. Tucker was the guy that was playing major minutes for them throughout the playoffs mm-hmm. and was one of the best rebounders. And 
nobody really would have expected that. The thing is, is that you can even go back to game five, where Harden, I don't think, had more than one shot in the final seven minutes. Yeah, and Durant's it, hurt. You gotta. That's a game that they should have won too. Durant goes out; it's winnable, and, and Harden just doesn't shoot. Yeah, it's strange because you wonder: Are they tired? Because for a guy like Harden that took the team on his back for a large stretch of the season to really disappear is odd. And for Houston not to close it out, or rather to win that game six and force the game seven at home, is bad. I mean, even Vegas thought that it was going to be a Game 7 coming up. The spread was about 7 points. Mm. And that's a lot of points to give a Golden State team that has been to the finals and won a couple back-to-back. I mean, you wonder, for Houston, do they have the mindset? Because you've got pieces there. But Gordon is a little inconsistent. He was good throughout the playoffs, but he was not great in Game 6. And then, like you said, Capella seems like that's a guy they need to have off the floor because Golden State just hurts them with their mismatches and then it leads you to what to Paul and Harden mm. I mean that again it's it's how much can you put on the shoulders of Harden and how much is left for Paul I mean he was great in game six 27 points is really good but he had his uh, moments where he was not great and for it's not just game six it really did seem like Houston had a couple of chances in this series to win games and they didn't yeah, and I also, you mentioned Gordon. I want to bring up the fact that he just wasn't shooting. He was passing up shots in game six. I mean, he, he had his looks and just wasn't taking them, so he was a little timid in there. But defensively, I mean, Curry was the only guy really killing you in the second half. Clay was knocking down some shots. Iggy was getting going. But Curry was getting to where he needed to be, and, and they couldn't keep the ball out of his hands. It just goes back to my, my thoughts on Steph, though, uh, B-Mark, we talk about him a lot, and I feel like he is still somewhat overlooked, which is crazy to say. But we forget that he can do this and, and really explode on, on command almost. There's no player in the NBA that you fear more when he starts making shots than Steph Curry. 100%. He can literally bring it up and pull up from anywhere in the half court, and you think he's going to make it. And there's no other player that you feel that about, and that's why he's so damn dangerous because he can get 12 points in a matter of 30 seconds if he wanted to. Well, I don't know where the Rockets go from here because it seems like they are just running into the wall yet again. And I don't know, with age of some of the players, with the cap constrictions, with some of the bad contract years that are coming up, I just don't know where they're going to go to actually get over the hump. Yeah, I don't know either. I'm not sure how much money they have to spend in this offseason. But, I mean, their starting lineup's fine. Um, you just need that guy that you can bring in for Capella. Um, I mean, you can't really rely on a guy like Austin Rivers or Mon Shumpert probably be those guys. Um, I don't know. It, it's a decent bench and a really good regular season bench. But for the playoffs, it's tough. But then again, I mean, you look at Golden State. If they lose Durant, I could see Houston having a legit shot to beat Golden State next year. Yeah, I... <laughs> That will open things up, but it's not going to just kick, as you know, it's not just going to kick Golden State to the curb. Oh, <laughs> They're going to be right, right in the mix again. But. They'll find somebody. I mean, they'll end up developing Looney, I'm sure, and they'll have guys like Alfonso McKinney or whatever that'll step up, and that's just the way they work. Mm -hmm. Well, as it stands now, we're looking at Golden State, Portland, Milwaukee, and Toronto. We didn't mention Milwaukee, but they most impressive performance probably in the in the second round, just throttling Boston. That Eastern Conference, that LeBron-less Eastern Conference is looking kind of entertaining. Um, I, I'm, that series, to me, is a total coin flip. Like, I, I don't have a, a read on it. I think it's going to go seven. I'd say I'm leaning Milwaukee, but who the hell knows at this point? I think Milwaukee's going to win that series. Um, I think the Raptors are good, but I just think that Milwaukee's better. And uh, I think Milwaukee's got some length to put on Kawhi. And the supporting cast just has not been great for Toronto. Um, Siakam has not been the same since he got hurt. So I, I just don't think they're going to be good enough. I think the one that will be interesting is to see how much of a fight Portland gives Golden State. Because you've got to imagine that Clay will be on either Lillard or McCollum. And then you'll probably have Igudala get put on one of those guys as well. And so for Portland, where does their offense come if one of those two guys is having a bad night? Because it can't just be one of those dudes. I mean, like we saw, Evan Turner stepped up uh, on Sunday. So who's going to step up? That's the question. 
Yeah, I, I think uh, Durant, the injury there, they're going to play the waiting game, obviously. As long as Golden State wins, they can just keep sitting him out until they need him. I think five games, maybe six. I'm just, I hope I'm wrong, but that's how I see it. No, I think that makes sense. Uh, I think Golden State probably wins the five. By the way, if you're uh, Seth Curry, I know it's the battle of the Curry brothers, first-time brothers have played in a conference final game against each other, and the parents are saying, we're just going to have to flip a coin and figure out who's rooting for who, I'd be a little upset. It's like, this guy's got everything. He's already <laughs> won a couple for me? titles. Yeah, yeah, who cares? Just root for me. Jesus, like, he's going to be fine. Yeah. But whenever I'm in the game, root for me. Come on. I mean, just it's not that hard. Steph's in the game for 37 minutes, 38 minutes. I'm in the game for, like, 15. I mean, just come on, root for me. I know. That, that's how I look at it. But either way, the conference finals should be fun. Last thing, though, Brandon Marcus, before we let you go, got to get your thoughts on the coaching hires. Because we got L.A. and Cleveland with some interesting ones. The stuff I, in L.A., though, I mean, I, I will say this has made me laugh. I'm sure as a Clippers fan, it's made you laugh every step of the way. But they have their man, it's Frank Vogel, and they have their coach in waiting and Jason Kidd. It's terrible. I mean, good for Lou. By the way, to not take that because he's no fool. I mean, he saw David Blatt. He was that guy. <laughs> yeah, he was that guy that was waiting for when Blatt got fired and he took over. I mean, he's not an idiot. He knows that if he doesn't win the title this year or if he doesn't make the Western Conference Finals, he's going to be fired. So why would you even go for that situation, whether it's a three-year deal or a five-year deal? Even if it was a five-year deal that he got, if they made him put Jason Kidd on his staff, I would have pretty much bet my house that he would not have taken that job because. The length of the contract doesn't matter anymore in the NBA. How often do you say, oh, no, he's not going to get fired because he still has a couple of years left on? <laughs> yeah, that would be never. <laughs> That's not a thing. I mean, just it's, and for the Lakers, they're such a cluster now, and, and they now they think they have a shot at Kawhi, which is not going to happen. And you, you really wonder who they're going to get in free agency. They might end up with a guy like Jimmy Butler, but I, I don't know. And it's really a mess over there because it seems like Jeannie's kind of lost control um, which is sad to see because she's such a good person. But it really it shows that she, I'm not sure she knows how to run this organization um, like her father did. And it, it, neither does her brother yeah. and does Kurt Rambis. So yeah, if you would have if I would have told you five years ago that the person in five years time making decisions or having the biggest voice in the room was Linda Rambis. Yeah, it's a problem. <laughs> probably probably would have been a problem. I also don't get the infatuation with Jason Kidd. I mean. Call me strange, but we have two coaching examples of him. Don't get this this big infatuation about making him a top assistant. It doesn't make sense. It that's... never works out when you tell a head coach, this guy has to be your assistant. Or right. hardly just, ever. So Just because he and LeBron played together? I mean, get out of here. That doesn't mean he's a good coach. He got fired from a team, and that team is now going to the Eastern Conference Finals because he held them back. It looks so much better. It looks so much more organized and just, Yeah. That's I, I don't get it. It doesn't make sense. I mean, it really does not make sense. You have clear evidence that he is not as good of a coach as Mike Budenholzer. A team was clearly held back because of him. And now you're making sure that he's on the staff. It, it really is ugly. Um, uh, I really want to give a lot of credit, though, to the Cavs. Okay. Because how often do you see a coaching search that is as quiet as the one they, they put together? I mean, I woke up this morning and I got their alert about Beeline. I mean, that never happens yeah. where nobody has any idea that something's about to go down. So good for them and good for Beeline. And I know that's the way he likes to work. I talked to my buddy who went to Michigan, and he said that really is Beeline. I mean, he hates things to be in the spotlight. Mm -hmm. He's as clean as they come. And uh, that's exactly what he would do is to make sure that if he was interested in it, nobody would say a word. And that's exactly what happened. Right. And I'll give them props for how they went about both sides, how they went about their business. This is still a gamble. Like, And I like Beeline as a coach, but – 66-year-old guy going to the NBA for the first time. We'll see. We'll see how this works. But it's something different. It's a new voice in the room. It's a new approach. So we will see. I mean, I think the bigger issue is what goes on in Dan Gilbert's front office and if it will get him players and then basically just get out of the way. But it's something. I mean, it all leads into this very fascinating draft lottery lottery we have tomorrow night. So That's tomorrow night? I think, yeah, Tuesday night, right? Is that when it starts? Holy cow, I didn't realize it was so soon. I believe it's this Tuesday, yeah. Yeah, so there and there yeah, it's Tuesday, May fourteenth. Yeah. So we'll uh we'll have to see there the Zion sweepstakes and really getting one or two. Top three or so is big. I mean, but you you get a chance to jump I think, in. 
Yeah, I think Ja Morant or Zion, I think, are the top two guys. I think right. you really want one of those two. Barrett's solid, too. I mean, it does drop off after about four. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, and, and I know a lot of people would be upset if Cleveland won another lottery, if a team like uh, or a team outside jumped up. Phoenix is up there again. The Knicks are everybody's darling. So this is a fascinating one, too. So I, I think I think it's big, and I do think that there's a legit chance. Everyone's talking Zion to New York that the Knicks win this lottery. They might just flip the pick to create a new super so? team. If Durant is going to go there, I, I, I know I'm, I'm against this normally, but if Durant's going to go there, you have Durant, you can get a guy like Anthony Davis maybe. I, I don't know. I mean. Wow, I didn't think about that. So you have a chance. I figured that they would keep Zion because he's so good, but that the window a- shrinks and then you know expectations shrink and and I would I I'm not saying I would for sure I'm saying that's definitely something to consider. Who would you rather have, Kyrie or Kemba? Ooh. <laughs> well, I would say Kyrie as long as he's not the alpha on the team. Yeah, and I think that was the problem they had with with Boston was that. As the number one option, as the leader, if he's thrust into that role, it's going to be a disaster. But if it's with Durant, and and there's an understanding there, and as a great as, I mean, he's won titles, he's at the game-winning shot in a Game 7 of a Finals game as the number two, I think that could work. Kemba's going to get paid, too. He's going to be the most expensive consolation prize this free agency. Yeah, I'll be curious to see where he goes. Because um, I like Kemba a lot. He's a really good player. Um, and I think Kyrie can get his shot better than Kemba can. Um, and obviously it's better handles. But that being said, I mean, I, I was really turned off by the way Kyrie ended up this postseason. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's not good at all. Um, the amount of shots that he missed, not pretty. But, I mean, boy, you could have KD, Kyrie, and then Anthony Davis in New York. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Yee. pretty something special there. That's the way uh, it's not going to happen because there, there's no way that Dolan gets good things. I mean, it's <laughs> zero chance. I I can almost guarantee you that New York's going to end up the number three or four pick in this. Uh, <laughs> that's funny. That That's more than likely true. History has taught us that. Uh, Brandon Marcus, this was fun. Last last thing, real last thing before I let you go. You feeling better or worse about Kawhi to the Clippers? Ah, good question. V- very good question. Because uh, the a guy that I follow that covers the team for the Athletic thinks that it was definitely worse for the Clippers that Kawhi made that shot, um, not only to advance them, but because he made that shot, like the type of shot and just the team rallying around him and the city rallying around him um, to hit a buzzer beater like that and to give you such good feelings. But I do think Kawhi is a human being that can separate basketball from this postseason to his playing career and going forward. So I still think the Clippers are probably the favorites, but um, I'll be rooting for Milwaukee. Uh, I'll, I'll put it at that. Do we know he's a human being, though? For sure. Yeah, it's true. Well, dude, he, he actually smiled. and it I think he's so weird, yeah. Too. That three, it was so. It was weird. He smiled, and then when he gave his interview, he went back to being a robot. But I I would agree with you and say that Clippers still in the driver's seat. But the more he wins, it's it's not helpful. If anything, it's not going to make it any better. So fascinating to see. Brandon Marcus, this was fun. Uh, We'll be catching up soon. But thanks for coming on the Money Mitch Effect. Thanks for having me. All right, huge thanks to Brandon Marcus. And again, we did tape that before the NBA draft lottery, which was pretty crazy. Saw the Pelicans get one, the Grizzlies get two, and the Knicks get a disappointing three with the Lakers moving up to the top four. Uh, Interesting notes, to say the least. Also, the Warriors just thrashed Portland in game one of that conference final. So looks like it might be a bit of the same in the NBA finals from the West. But thanks again to Brandon Marcus for joining the show. Now we're going to switch it up, talk some MMA with... Jose Young, he writes for MMA Fighting, and he's going to discuss UFC 237 with Saul Jessica Andrade, defeat Rose Namajunas in vicious fashion. We talk about that, some Bellator, and a big bunch of fights coming up this summer. It's Jose Young's now on the Money Mitch Effect. All right, now on the Money Mitch Effect to talk mixed martial arts as only he could, MMA Fighting's. Jose Young's friend of the show, Jose. Thanks for calling in and, and breaking an international record here. I don't think I've talked to anyone outside the States yet. Yeah, just living it up down here in Juarez, Mexico. So not well. I shouldn't say living it up. It's not beachside, but visiting some family in Mexico. So, But glad to be setting records on the Money Mitch show. There you go. There you go. And, and I do want to mention, I don't know, I know you're 
you're south of the border right now. If you if you caught any of that uh, draft lottery tonight with the NBA, it was actually pretty entertaining. It was entertaining from a from a from a from a standard of Laker fans got their hopes up and then were immediately crushed. Well, it's not as bad as Knicks fans. They no. tanked the whole season, traded away everything, and hoping of getting that number one pick. Where they ended up getting three, something like that. Yeah. So not the end of the world. They can still get what R.T. Barrett, whatever his name is. Yeah, uh, R.T. Barrett. There. It's just from the Laker fan perspective, they're in the top four, which I didn't even know that was a thing. Now I thought in the old day that shows you how much I pay attention to the technicalities of the lottery. But I thought top three was all that was guaranteed in the move up. But they got four. And the team that they're trying to get their best player of, the Pelicans, get number one. So maybe Davis doesn't yep. get traded now. So it actually wasn't a great night for the Lakers. But I'm not, not I'm not sympathetic. They you know, they made their bed so they can sleep in it. It's just funny that one and two, not exactly big markets. So for all the conspiracy theorists out there, I don't think they'd rig it to go New Orleans than Memphis. I'm pretty disappointed that this month, because I live in Phoenix, that the Suns ended up getting like the worst record in basketball. They don't have a point guard. Their owner's a joke. Uh, they they're, they've had historically, they set the record for most losses in a row this season, yeah. which was set the previous year. So that record lasted one year, and they ended up getting like number six. Yeah. So I I wouldn't I I want to say I'm surprised, but I'm not. There's no way the NBA would allow us to get a top three pick. But disappointed all around. Celtics I think cracked the top fourteen, so that's all right. But. Uh, at least the Lakers and the Knicks didn't get number one. That's all I have to say. Yeah, rough night for Cavs, Bulls, Suns all falling down. But, Jose, let's talk uh, some MMA right now, and I, and I want to give you some, some props first. You were at Bellator 221 in Chicago covering it. What was that like? I, I know one thing that I saw, and that's like the birth of a new heel, if that even exists in <laughs> MMA. But it looked like a decent car, new champion crown. And uh, I think DAZN does a pretty good job airing this uh, promotion as well. It was a good card, man. I, I I was saying all weekend, like, yeah, UFC 237 had a lot of big names. They had the women's strawweight title fight. But in terms of, like, actual competitive high-level martial arts, the two best fights were the main and co-main event of Bellator 221. I mean, Michael Chandler versus Patricio Pitbull mm-hmm. was basically a fight for the great – whoever won is – I don't think there's an argument against it that they're the greatest fighter in Bellator history. And then Michael Venom Page versus Douglas Lima was just the high. Out of all the fights this weekend, and the UFC and Bellator, I was most hyped about MVP versus Douglas Lima and lived up to the hype. So all around, fantastic card in Bellator. I was a little bummed it was on the same night as UFC 237A because I missed. Uh, I had to rewatch UFC 237 the next day. And B, I wish all the fighters on the Bellator card got a little more eyeballs yeah. on them because it was such a stellar main card. Yeah, how about that knockout, too, in the Lima fight? I it saw was, that. Uh, I didn't catch it live, but uh, wow. <laughs> yeah, and Lima was winning. I mean, I mean, MVP was winning that whole fight. Uh, he had him on the ropes. I mean, not on the ropes. I mean, he had him on uh, on his heels. Uh, he clipped him a few. Even before the knockout, he clipped him and then missed with a flying knee. And he said that when, he, when his legs got kicked out from underneath him, if he had just rolled back, he would have been fine, but he tried to just stand up like he was so confident he was a little overconfident from all the success he had that fight leading up to it that he was a little overconfident he just stood up like like an idiot and just got punched to the jaw and got knocked unconscious so he the only seconds he lost were the last three seconds so it it was a it was a beautiful fight though and uh mvp was uh more than gracious in defeat uh and douglas lima punched his ticket to the finals of that welterweight tournament so he'll be fighting for the welterweight title next so uh, I, I think uh, it was a beautiful fight, and I'm, I, I wish he got a little more eyeballs on him, though. We're gonna we're gonna talk in seconds about somebody else that was winning and then brutally lost. But before that, uh, I do want to ask you because I'm kind of spoiled, and I had to look at what his actual birth name is. With the wrestling crossover, is Jake Hager a legit <laughs> fighter? I mean, I mean, no, I know Brock Lesnar is the is the one and only Brock Lesnar. We've seen other guys try to do it to mixed to po- mix poor results. Is he an actual fighter? Is he going to be winning anything, accomplishing a lot in this in this promotion? I don't know if he wins the title. I mean, when I was speaking to him at the event, he said his goal was to fight for the title by the end of 2020. I don't know if that's realistic. He is 2-0, and but his two opponents he beat were, I mean, if you go to any regional fight, like any amateur or like local fights, and you have heavyweights, they're usually not that competitive. It's usually one out-of-shape guy versus a guy that's semi-out-of-shape. Maybe he is a little athletic, but... All the good heavyweights are already taken by Bellator or the UFC or 1FC or a lot of the heavyweights are already taken. So uh, Jake Hager's two two opponents were like combined like 
I don't know, one and one, two and zero, oh, something like that. So uh, I want to see him face obviously better competition. Uh, but he wants to fight for the title by 2020. I don't know how realistic that is. He is a legitimate collegiate wrestler, but he's 37 or 38, something like that. He's obviously been he was in the WWE for like 10 or 11 years. So I don't know how much his body, how much his uh, damage his body has gone through in those 10 or 11 years. So I don't know if he wins the title, but he's 2-0 in Bellator. You can't take that away from him. No, it'll be interesting to see, but we're going to turn our attention to UFC 237. And uh, I actually got to catch the entire duration of this card, Jose. I'll start with this one. Could not believe. I, I, I catch myself doing this. I always just geeked up for the main card. I don't always pay attention to the preliminary card until a day or two before. BJ Penn fighting. Was not expecting to see that and actually go the distance. He lost, but it's always fun to see him fight, although I'm kind of in the in the camp of I don't know what we're going to see left of him, but it was fun. It was different. It was a throwback. Yeah, not a lot of people wanted this fight. Uh, I, I would have been very surprised if he had won it. He, he now holds the record for most consecutive losses in a row in UFC history. I think that was his seventh straight loss. So BJ Penn... I consider the greatest lightweight ever, but that's because the lightweight division has been so in flux for so many years that it's really hard to nail down the greatest of all time. And he's kind of the greatest by default because he holds a bunch of the records from mm-hmm. way long ago. So, but he's he's lost some bad guys. Like, well, not like bad as in like they're really good. Like he's lost to Nick Diaz. He's lost to Roy McDonald. He's lost to Frankie Edgar. That loss against Dennis Seaver kind of stands out, and then he got sold by Ryan Hall, and then. It's obviously not the BJ Penn we've always we were used to seeing from like ten or eleven years ago. So I would have been, I would have been very shocked if he pulled out a a win over Clay Guida, who's been one of the more active fighters in UFC history. Yeah, I agree with that completely, and I think it kind of was a little foreshadowing, and that it wasn't a great card for the veterans, the legends, the first ballot Hall of Famers of the game. We saw two of them go down, and one in, in gruesome injury. I want to talk about that one first. Jose Silva, it was just not pretty, and this has happened before, but it was uh, as brutal a way to end a fight, on, stop on a dime as there is. Uh, we've seen him injure his leg and, and knee before. I don't know exactly the extent of the injury, but when it happened, everybody in the area that I'd been watching the fight with knew that this wasn't going to last any longer. It's brutal to see anyone go out that way. I don't know. I know you didn't you recover in Bellator. You didn't see it live, but what was your initial thought to seeing Silva go down with yet another injury stoppage early in a fight? I thought I did predict it would be a finish. Well, in MMA fighting, we give our picks, and I did predict it would be a TKO for Jared Cannon here. I didn't think it would be an injury like that because, for people who don't know, Jared he came into the UFC as a, as a big heavyweight. He was kind of a chubbier, soft, but he was still a, a thick heavyweight. And then he cut down to light heavyweight, and he was still pretty soft, and he had some, like moderate success. And then he cut all the way to middleweight, and now he's like a shredded, hulking massive 185 pounder so and he packs dynamite in his hand i mean he ran through he took a fight against david branch at usc 230 on short notice and just decapitated yeah. him so oh, yeah. i didn't i kind of figured jared cannon there would win i picked by tko i didn't think it would be an injury i didn't think it would be in the first round but uh i i had a feeling this would happen anderson's obviously on the wrong side of 40 uh he's not quite on the bj Penn levels but i don't know why the ufc keeps giving him these uh I don't want to call Jared Cannonier an up-and-comer, but like Anderson's last fight was against Israel Adesanya. I don't know why they keep giving him these fights <laughs> against the elite middleweights of the world. He's kind of beyond that nostalgia run, but uh, it was it was it was sad to see uh, such an icon go down like that. For sure. Do you think he's going to keep fighting for a while? I know, oh, he absolutely he absolutely is. He absolutely it definitely is. seems like he, there's no slowing down. I mean, the way he handles himself, he wants to fight. Yeah, every he said he. Uh, card. He said he had. Uh, his, yeah, I think he has three or four contra- fights left on his contract, and then he wants to keep fighting after that. I mean, he just really loves martial arts. I think he, he still wants to fight for the title. He has a big enough name where, uh, say, he's fighting on an undercard and a, a middleweight get, contender gets hurt. I mean, he has no problem just kind of slotting himself into these these fights against the up-and-coming guys. I get the sense that he really wants to fight in Brazil. So he'll fight anyone if 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 he can get on the Brazilian card, he'll fight anyone. So I kind of get the I get the sense that he's gonna go that route that he just wants to fight in front of his uh, home in his home city in his home home country. But uh, uh, I I don't know if I want to see I maybe one more it went, see see what he has before he gets injured. But I don't know. It's not <laughs> he doesn't have much left in the tank. 
Right, for sure. And Cannoneer's the other one, too. I know you mentioned he's almost up and, up and comer. It's strange to say because he's 34, 35 years old, coming in at about 10 or so now in the middleweight rankings. Do you think there's potential for him to, I don't want to say escalate up these rankings pretty quickly, but he can beat just about anybody in his wake on a good day. Do you think there's a chance that he makes a serious run at maybe pushing for the title? Oh, 100%. Not even a question. I mean, you're seeing a lot of guys in the UFC middleweight division kind of make the exodus up to light heavyweight. I mean, mm-hmm. Tiago Santos, Anthony Smith, Luke Rockhold, like all of these guys have left the middleweight division to go on to fight a light heavyweight. I mean, Anthony Smith just fought John Jones. Tiago Santos is fighting John Jones in July. Luke Rockhold's fighting on that same card. Him and John Jones have some bad blood. So because the UFC middleweight division has kind of had this mass exodus, Israel Adesanya had, what, four or five fights, and he just won the interim title. Robert Whitaker and him are probably going to throw down in October. That's not official, but that's just what I hear. Kelvin Gastelum is obviously out there. And then Jack Hermanson, he was like the number 15 or 10 or whatever. He beat David, David Branch, too, and then took a fight and beat Jacques Array badly in five rounds. So he went from like 15 or 10 to like number five, like right away. So this middleweight division is in massive fluctuation where you only need a handful of fights to fight for the title. And then obviously Chris Wyman is out there, but Jacques Array knocked him out at UFC mm-hmm. 230. So, and then Yoel Romero and Paulo Costa are fighting in August. So there's no question in my mind that Jared Cannonier could fight for a UFC middleweight championship down the road just because the middleweight division has been... I've never seen it this much in flux. It feels like for years it was the Weidmans, Rockhold, Machida, Anderson Silva, Michael Bisbing, like all those guys, they were always at the top. And then Jacques Array was like the outlier that never fought for the title. And all of a sudden the top five is just a bunch of young young up and hungry prospects and then Yoel Romero is just sitting there who could beat all of them including Robert Whitaker who a lot of people think Yoel Romero beat twice so yeah the middleweight division is awesome right now so Jared but Jared Cannonier is right there yeah I mean you mentioned it it's it's in total flux just get on a winning streak and and we'll see what happens but he's got power he's got pop in his punches he is an animal and I think he'll have a chance if he wins a couple more fights to fight for the title Jose Young's money Mitch Effect. Let's talk about the other veteran, the other OG, the legend, maybe the greatest featherweight of all time, who lost as well. Hmm. Aldo loses the Volkanovski unanimous decision loss. Volkanovski uh, uh, just continues to impress, and I want to mention the fight like this, Jose. One of the rare times, maybe the only rare time, where we've seen Aldo for three rounds get dominated, and not and not in the sense that it wasn't competitive, but Volkanovski. And controlled the action in the cage. He was landing the cleaner shots. He was pushing Aldo up against the cage, and he controlled the fight. I was very impressed. This was not a loss where I say Aldo needs to hang it up. This was about, in my opinion, the other guy being that much better. Oh, 100%. I mean, Jose Aldo, to me, is the greatest featherweight ever. If he had won this, there would be an argument whether he would he should fight Max Holloway for a third time, and the argument would be right there. But Volkanovski, he was on the MMA Hour on Monday in MMA Fighting, and he basically credited his, his coach put together an absolutely perfect game plan. He stuck to it. He didn't fall into any traps. And watching that fight, like he, he said it himself, like his goal was to make Jose Aldo uncomfortable in the cage, in the octagon, so he it's would us. be uh, hesitant to like throw anything. And that's exactly what happened. And Volkanovski sh- should be fighting for the title. The problem is Frankie <laughs> Edgar just got the title so, fight, yeah. which if, if you compare their last four fights, last four or five fights, they're pretty even. The only people that Frankie Edgar lost to were Jose Aldo and Brian Ortega. Brian Ortega fight, he didn't have to take. He just chose to be the company man. And the UFC has proven that if you scratch their back, they'll scratch your back. And he accepted the fight. He got knocked out, and then he also accepted the fight against Yair Rodriguez. I mean, not Yair Rodriguez, uh, the Korean Zombie, who was coming off a, such a long layoff that he wasn't even ranked. So Frankie Edgar was fighting an unranked, very dangerous opponent before he got hurt and had to pull out the fight. So he did the UFC a couple of favors. Max Holloway, I know his goal is to be one of the greatest fighters ever. To be the greatest featherweight, he's already beaten Jose Aldo twice. He has to beat Frankie Edgar. If Max Holloway beats Frankie Edgar, I really think there's an argument that he has surpassed Jose Aldo as the greatest featherweight ever, considering he's basically done everything Jose Aldo's done, plus knock out Jose Aldo twice. So I think Max Holloway really wants that fight. Frank Edgar obviously wanted that fight, and the UFC appreciated what Frank Edgar did and gave him the, gave him the title fight. So yes, Volkanovski deserves it, but it's really like 
such an unfortunate timing that uh, Frank Yeager ha- was coming back from an injury, and the UFC did him a favor. Yeah, and I just want to mention as well, and just the closing thing on Aldo, he's going to be in the mix. This was another, this was a loss, but he, he's he's still fighting at a high enough level to have his chances. You mentioned the fact, I know Volkanovski called this essentially sympathy on his part, what he saw, and there is a quid pro quo between uh, the UFC and company men that do them favors. Volkanovski's time will come. Because I don't think, do you, Jose, do you think he fights again before it's for a title? I think so, yeah. they have, In October, like I said, uh, Robert Whitaker and Israel Adesanya are fighting, which will probably be in Australia. That's not official, but that's just what I've heard. And Volkanovski is obviously from that part of the world, and I think he's going to want to be on that card. Who he fights, I don't know. He could fight Brian Ortega. He could fight the winner of Korean Zombie and uh, Hanato Moicano. The featherweight division is fun, but yeah. uh, the Volkanovski beating Jose Aldo and then like them <laughs> immediately booking Paulo Edgar. It's just it's just unfortunate timing. Yeah, uh, there's there's a lot of fun scraps at featherweight though. It's one of the the more exciting divisions in in, in all of MMA. Even Zabit is That's out there. So I was just I would, gonna say. I would love to see Zabit and uh, Volkanovski. I don't know. Oh, I think man. that's just – I, I, that to me is an awesome fight. Whether Zabit wants to go to Australia for it is another story, but I expect Volkanovski to be on that October card. It's just a matter of who will fight. Yeah, and, and I'm just putting it out well, there. Well, I, 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 I do want to say – Yeah. I do want to say, though, on his flight back, flying back from Brazil, Brazil, his, he said his feet hurt and he didn't mm. feel very well. This was after the MMA hour. And then he had a, uh, like a layover in Santiago, Chile. And he felt super sick, and he actually got off the plane and went to the hospital, and he had, like, a blood infection. Uh, so he's on, like, antibiotics and IVs and all that stuff in South America still. So uh, let I, I would like to see how that plays out before we can even talk about right. Volkanovski and another opponent because that's, that's scary. It is. We all hope that he, he gets better. Uh, and, and like I said, it was one of the most impressive performances in the last couple months, I think, in what he did to Aldo. So good for him, and uh, hopefully you know he'll get his day fighting for that. Featherweight belts. All right, Jose, the last fight, the main event in Brazil. What an ending there. Jessica Andrade becoming the strawweight title. KO taking out Rose. Namajunas Thug Rose loses. Watch this fight. Admittedly pulling for Rose. Great first round for Rose. Maybe one of the best rounds she's ever had in an octagon. But we know what Jessica can do. She can lift. She's powerful. And uh, I think this will come down to one of the most vicious takedowns I've ever seen. Like, we... I legitimately thought there could have been a broken neck involved. She finishes her shortly after that, Jose. It was a little sudden, I would say, but also a situation where, from my vantage point, it looks like maybe Rose deciding not to let go of that Kimura or that submission hold she had really did her in. What did you think about it? I think it, if Jessica Andrade was going to win, it's, it, it would have to be in that sort of fashion. I mean, that first round, when I finally rewatched it, that was a really exciting first round. I mean, Rose was just on point i mean i always thought jessica andrade was had the perfect was the perfect style of fighter to beat rose and rose was basically proving me wrong that first round when she was just her transitions from submission to submission were just absolutely phenomenal i don't want to say she was well on her way to winning because you never it was still early in the yeah. fight when she got knocked out but she looked incredible in that first round she was clicking on all cylinders and then jessica andrade proved like she knocked out carolina kovacavish and just decapitated her with one punch and to have that type of power in a, in at 150 pounds is unbelievable to watch and i think jessica andrade is pretty much is really one of the only fighters in the top 10 who has power like that 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 just like one punch knockout mm-hmm. from any angle so I, I it doesn't surprise like if if i didn't know how it finished and you would have told me jessica andrade wins by knockout i would have said that makes sense but yeah. the fact that it was a slam and such a devastating fashion was very shocking to watch it's pretty scary i thought rose really did break her neck but she's 100 percent. andrade said she'd love to do the rematch obviously yoana already has a win over andrade so i'm sure they'll go that direction tatiana suarez and answer off are fighting in chicago that's probably a number one contender fight but then you have michelle waterson who's also streaking up the up the the rankings and she's a, a huge fan favorite so strawweight division is absolutely awesome right now yeah, I don't want to give props too also to Rose for taking that fight. I didn't realize it had only been a few of the uh, really a few ever American champions to defend their belts in the UFC on foreign soil. What do you think about the comments after the fight though? Do you think Rose is seriously leaning towards retiring because it sounded like she was it's, hinting at something of at least an extended break? 
I think she's going to take a long break for sure. I mean, she was she was one of the more active fighters in the UFC for such a long time, and she's such a such a sweet person, and she she has a lot of interests outside of fighting. When I say interests, I don't mean like acting or music or stuff. Like she loves being she loves farming she loves nature she loves hiking she's very very granola i mean when she fought in new york city she just she didn't like being in the city she she got out as fast as possible she like she flew there at the latest possible date so i it wouldn't surprise me uh she might get the itch again but she took a, she was basically out more than a year between her Joanna fight and andrade fight but i wouldn't be surprised if she retired i wouldn't i don't want to say i'd be sad because at the end of the day if a fighter it should never no one should fight if they're not 100% in it because that's a, that's a dangerous predicament to be in when someone's trying to knock your head off and you don't want to be there. Uh, but if she does retire, I'd be happy for her because she, she is such a sweet person. I don't know what else. She doesn't have to prove anything to anyone. She's already one of the greatest women fighters of all, female fighters of all time. And uh, I would be happy if she retired. Yeah, I feel the exact same way. You want to go out on your terms as a fighter. So we'd be spoiled, spoiled in saying that we'd miss seeing her fight. 100%. But. And, uh, yeah, strawweight division looking dangerous, but we, we both feel it. Tatiana's coming. It's, oh, I, 100%. I think Tatiana's, I think Tatiana could be a, a champ champ, flyweight and strawweight. She is oh, yeah. an unbelievable – she's basically Habib at 115 pounds. Uh, her fight against Nina. Uh, but Nina, her fight, every fight, like she was on the verge of retiring too, and then she took a fight on short notice and just won and won and won. And she's won a lot of fights. That I thought she would lose. I mean, her fight against Claudia Gadelia, I still think Claudia is one of the best fighters in the women's strawweight division ever. I mean, she was she almost beat Joanna before she ran out of gas, and I actually think Claudia beat Joanna in their first fight. Uh, and I thought she was going to run through Nina, and Nina won, and it just absolutely shocks me. One of the better, bigger upsets I can remember in uh, the women's strawweight division, and uh, so I I don't want to count her out because she's proved me wrong a lot. But I do think Tatiana Suarez is the best female strawweight in the world, for sure. Valentina Tatiana, I'm not sure. Like I think it's possible Tatiana wins, but my God, is that a great fight? <laughs> it's a, it's in terms of martial arts, that's awesome. It's such a beautiful fight. But there's still, again, there's a lot of women. At, there's a lot of women at flyweight. Yeah, who Valentina yeah. could fight too. I mean, uh, Liz Carmouche has been on a run. Roxanne Matafari is a very. The, what Ma- Roxanne has is she's such a fan favorite. Like, I don't know anyone in the world. If you have something bad to say about Roxanne Matafari, you're just a bad person. She's one of the nicest. She's one of the nicest people I've ever met. She's so funny, charismatic, and quirky. Happy that warrior, she, she, yeah. Exactly. She could fight for a title just as, like, a fill-in, as, like, a feel-good story. So the flyweight division is obviously one of the more shallow divisions out there. I think if Tatjata wins the strawweight, she defends a handful of time. I don't have a problem if she just jumps up and fights for the title right away. But, uh... Valentina does have just guy who's who's no easy victor, no no slouch whatsoever. Yeah, it's gonna be fun, man. I can't wait. And on that note, Jose Youngs from MMA Fighting. Before I let you go here on the Money Mitch Effect, we do have some big fights coming up uh, this summer. A great summer, but I'm looking at 241 because <laughs> it got announced there will be a rematch. It's been a year, but we're finally gonna see the heavyweight title rematch and. Maybe the blood's a little, I wouldn't say bad, but it's boiling a little bit more. Not not exactly pleasantries between these two guys now. Yeah, definitely not. I mean, I get where both guys are coming from. Stipe 100% deserved their rematch, uh, media rematch, because he is he does, did hold all the records in, Uf, in the UFC division. But he got knocked out in the first round. I mean, Josie Aldo didn't even get a rematch. He's the greatest featherweight ever. I mean, Ronda got a rematch, but it's Ronda Rousey. Stipe Miocic. <laughs> For as much, as great of a fighter he is, never wanted to play the UFC's game. He he he's not the best interview. He's not the most marketable. Him and Dana White has constantly butted heads. I mean, he sat out for a long time to try and get a bigger contract. Him and the UFC don't see eye to eye whatsoever. I've never known him to be that. He's be, he's very agitated during fight week, like during interviews and stuff. He's he's always annoyed. He did not like Dana White praising Francis and Ganu so much yeah. before before their fight, and then he the fact that he took Francis to a decision to not sit well with Dana White. So it's it's a bummer. He's one of the greatest fighters ever. But And Daniel Cormier fought Derek Lewis in Madison Square Garden, and Stipe chose to sit out. If I'm Dan, Dan, like, I don't like that aspect. Like, if Daniel Cormier had a hurt hand, he had surgery on his hand, I think Stipe should have taken a fight. I mean, that, fought, that 
ESPN card in Phoenix should have been Stipe versus Kane. Yeah. That should have been the main event, not Kane versus Francis. And I really like Stipe as a fighter and as a person, but I didn't like how he basically just sat with his arms folded and pouted right. and waited. Now- yeah, now, I know I, he's your guy. I know, and I, I agree with that part of it. That was not the best move, but it, it, and I'll just defend him in saying this: the fact that it even got to that point with Cormier taking the Lewis fight because he admitted it was an easier fight. That's what doesn't sit well with me, and certainly didn't sit well with Stipe. Now I agree that everything after that, Stipe should have fought and handled it better. But I think that was the tipping point for all of this. I agree, uh, but Daniel Cormier got an ins- he got seven figures fight Derek Lewis the UFC said here's seven figures Daniel Cormier goes who am I fighting the UFC said Derek Lewis and right. Dan- Daniel Cormier was like okay so there's I layers to this you, yeah I know I that's part of the UFC's beef with Stipe too for sure I guarantee you if they were like here's seven figures and Daniel Cormier was like who am I fighting and they said Stipe Miocic you would have been like well all right the UFC <laughs> just didn't offer him I mean Daniel yeah. Cormier doesn't turn down fights he fought Vulcan Ozdemir I mean he's <laughs> not the biggest name in the world and Daniel Cormier was like who am I fighting? And they're like, Vulcan. He's like, all right, let's go. Who am I fighting? Gustafson? Let's do it. So Daniel Cormier doesn't turn down fights. He was hurt. He had his injured hand. He prolonged. He extended his retirement because he wanted to fight in March and then retire. But because he had a busted hand, he prolonged it. So, so but, it's going to be this one and then one more is still the plan. Probably John Probably John Jones, probably a light heavyweight. MSG? That's what he said. Maybe. MS- maybe. I, don't, I think Daniel will need a little more time to cut from heavyweight to light heavyweight. So I'm Maybe the New Year's Eve card, like end of December or beginning of January, or maybe even Super Bowl weekend. I know that's always a big card. It just really depends on John Jones' schedule. I mean, John Jones really wants to stay active. He has that Luke Rockhold fight he could take. Uh, he could always, he obviously, the Daniel Cormier fight is out there. The light heavyweight division isn't the deepest, but everyone wants to fight John Jones. So uh, <laughs> we'll see. But if Daniel Cormier wants to fight John Jones, the UFC is not going to say no to him. And, uh, Daniel Cormier, to his credit, did say, if Brock Lesnar doesn't want to fight, I will fight Stipe. And he's a man of his word. He's like, I promised Stipe, so that's what I'm doing. There's just he, But he also said, like, I don't have to be nice to this guy anymore because he's kind of been a dick to me. <laughs> so uh, we'll see. Now, it's not, it's going to be an interesting stare down when they finally get face-to-face. It really will. And uh, it should be a fun week, fun fight, 241. I'm also just wondering how much time they're going to need at 241 to uh, clean up all the blood from the Diaz-Pettis fight. Um, and, you know, and Romero Costa. I mean, that's All just going to be a bloodbath. Like, blood <laughs> like, Daniel Cormier Stipe has the least amount of bad blood. Like, Romero and Costa hate each other. Nate Diaz and Anthony Pettis hate each other. Daniel Cormier and Stipe right now, yeah, they butt heads, but they're basically the most cordial to each other out of those three <laughs> fights. It's going to be great. Well, Jose, last thing before I let you go, there are a lot of big fights coming up. We got Jones trying to defend his title at that like pre uh pre-draft Muhammad Ali rate where he just wants to fight all the time. We got a lot of fight cards coming up, some big fights. What else that we haven't mentioned are you really looking forward to? Uh, the Kevin Lee fight, Rafael Dos Anjos, I'm really, I'm very excited about that. That's two lightweights who basically went up to welterweight. I want to see how Kevin Lee does at 170 pounds. You obviously have, uh, I want to see Jack Hermanson return. UFC 238, I'm very, very excited for as Henry Cejudo finally fights. Uh, Tony Ferguson versus Cowboy Cerrone which is just going to be madness oh, man. inside the fight. octagon. <laughs> uh, the winner of that will will for sure fight the winner of Habib uh, versus Dustin Poirier. Uh, it's a three-round fight, so you have to think that favors Tony Ferguson because Donald Cerrone is historically a very slow starter, and Tony Ferguson is historically a very fast starter. So a three-round fight I you'd think would favor Tony Ferguson, but Donald Cerrone holds pretty much all the UFC records. So out of all the fights... Out of all the non-title fights, that's obviously the one the one I'm most excited for. But there's a there's a lot, a lot, a lot of fascinating fights, and then I, we haven't even talked about Tyron Woodley and Robbie Lawler going to run it back. So there's a there's so many fights this summer that I'm excited for. So many Cejudo can become a champ, champ, and also Korean Zombie getting back at it. So there, there's oh, some... I'm not I, I <laughs> Korean Zombie as you know is my favorite fighter in the world, and and not so much Kano. Is, you do the I do the Cormier. They say Korean Zombie's fighting. You're like okay. <laughs> Let's, I'm like, who's he fighting? Doesn't matter. Uh, I love Hanato Maikano too. He's such a nice guy. He'll fight anyone too. And the Korean Zombie is one of those guys where he was out for so long, and then he came back. And I think to me, his fight against the IAR last year was the best fight of the year. Uh, and oh, then he the did, best he, finish I've ever seen. 
That's the great. He lost, but that's the greatest knockout I've seen in in, in combat sports history. That's the greatest knockout. Maybe there's when Badahari got knocked out by that Rolling Thunder. I can't remember to who back in the K1 days. That was chaos because he broke his jaw, and it was also like knocking out Badahari like that. I mean, <laughs> come on. But uh, <laughs> uh, Koreans, I'll watch Korean Zombie fight anyone. Unranked, ranked, he could fight a pillow, and I'll still be. He'll still turn it into a bloodbath. So uh, I'm pretty excited. Somehow, and there's one last note. Do you think this is it at 2:39 for Nunez? Do I think it? No, definitely she's not. Keep I think it going. She, okay. She's she has to fight Cyborg again. I mean, she kind of recognized that. Yeah. yeah. She doesn't say. She says that. Oh, I'm done at 1:45. But uh, when you knock out the greatest ever, I really do think you should run it back just to prove it's not a fluke. That's that's always been. Uh, in, but you don't have to, right? Like right. Conor McGregor never ran it back against Jose Aldo because how how are you going to beat 13 seconds? Uh, if they fought again, Connor could very well win, but I don't think he beat he knocks him out in thirteen seconds again. And it's it's never sat well that Jose never got his rematch, but Stipe got his rematch. Ronda Rousey eventually fought for a title again. Anderson snapped his leg in half, but he got his rematch. Everyone deserves a rematch when you're the greatest of all time and Cyborg deserves it. Uh she'll fight again. I know Megan Anderson has a fight and I believe on that I think on that Chicago card, I'm not hundred percent. But uh, Megan and- if Megan Anderson wins, maybe Cyborg fights her for an interim title, and then she fights Nunes for a title unification. Maybe on that jo- the undercard of Jones Cormier on end of the- end of the year. But they have they have to run that back for sure. Well, should be fun. We're all dying to see all these fights. Jose Youngs, thanks for joining the show. Get some re- get some uh, relaxation and some rest. Uh, Honestly, I. Get- I get a couple weeks off, and then I'm going to Vegas for double or nothing. AEW, you're gonna go oh, watch okay. Kenny Omega and Jericho. Yeah, you know, so, I, you know, I might, I'm gonna actually be there. So yeah, I'll be may, there too. May so find we'll a link way up. To, yeah, may find a way to make my way in there and see Jericho Omega and see do it, man. The, the Rhodes brothers go at it too. So gotta, do it. Gotta gotta find a way in the stadium, but in the MGM. But all right, Jose Youngs, this was fun. Thanks for coming on the money. Anytime, man. That's it for today's show. Big thanks to both guests, Brandon Marcus and Jose Youngs. And if you're watching hockey out there, as I am, you're really geeked up as well for what is now the final four, but looks like only three with the Bruins up 3-0 on the Hurricanes, one game away from the final. They're one game away from playing for the Stanley Cup. Blue Sharks is going to be a long, long series, it looks like. Game three tonight. Make sure you watch that as well. More basketball, Eastern Conference final starts, Raptors and Bucks. We got fights, baseball. It's a great time for sports also the pre mistakes this week so a lot going on in the sports world thanks to everybody out there for listening you can find every episode of the money mitch effect on soundcloud itunes and google play subscribe leave a rating or a review there as well check out the money mitch effect facebook page and follow me on twitter money mitch m21 for all your sporting needs this was the money mitch effect mitch michael signing off reminding you to keep enjoying sports <laughs>